If you have a Bible, you can turn in the book of Genesis to chapter 48. Continuing to read through the book of Genesis, we come to chapter 48, and we'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 22. Lend your attention. This is God's word. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in Matthew to chapter 10, continuing on in this second discourse, this commission of the 12 to a sort of local mission in Galilee in the first 15 verses. We come to verse 16 where it becomes plain that the Lord's instruction about this temporary mission the apostles are going to discharge during the Lord's lifetime, that they begin to look beyond that temporary mission into what 
we reasonably call the church age, the time of the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth, the time that will continue until Christ returns in glory. And he tells them that it's not going to be easy. This mission that he's sending them on, this mission to bring life to a dying world, it turns out that death is fairly entrenched. That the light that they bring to the world is not going to be welcomed with open arms, just as this world did not welcome the light of the world with open arms. Because the world loved darkness rather than light, because her works were evil, as the Lord teaches in John's Gospel. And so the difficulty that befell the Lord Jesus Christ is here set forth as very similar to the difficulty that he prepares his disciples to receive, not just then and there, but here and now, indeed, for all time, until Christ returns. And so with that, I'll invite you to lend your attention to God's holy word. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Thus ends the reading of God. May he add his blessing to us. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we bless and praise your name for your word, which is true and truth for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ who deals with us truthfully and well even as hard words and difficult words are delivered, we know that you uphold us and you sustain us. And For your people, Lord, you position us to benefit from them, to receive of them rightly. And so we ask now that you would enable us to receive of these words rightly, that we would draw from them the encouragement which Christ would have us take, and that you would be pleased, O Lord, to sustain us in faith as you exalt the shepherd, the king, the one in whom we are confident, the one in whom we are strong, not being strong in and of ourselves. For we are but sheep, helpless, weak, prone to wander, left to ourselves. But the shepherd is strong. And you've been pleased to place us in him and indeed to seal our hearts with the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that even now you would minister to us by that wonderful working of the Holy Spirit who takes these words and makes them light and life, true food, as we receive them from the hand of the King. I pray all these things in his name. Amen. The Christian life is full of difficulties and dangers. Scripture teaches that plainly. Perhaps one of the more perplexing difficulties is the call to do good to people who may be actively trying to harm you and who may be actively despising you for the good that you are trying to do them. 
If on the one hand, our doctrine of sin teaches us that this is not all that surprising, but we have a thick understanding of sin, you perhaps even have a thick experience with sin. Making what I just said about someone receiving good, not in gratefulness, but in hostility, making that understandable. If our doctrine of sin teaches us that such a response to good is not all that surprising, at the same time, the experience itself can be incredibly disorienting. There's a sense in which this is generally true all the time. I can tell you something is going to be hard until I'm blue in the face, but there's a sense in which that's not going to communicate until you are in the hard. So it is for this most perplexing layer of the Christian faith that sometimes an earnest attempt to do good to someone, to do true good to someone, is met not with a receptivity, but with a hostility. And if we're honest with ourselves, the first flash of opposition from others in our attempts to do them good is often enough to send us either into fight or flight. The first whiff of, op the first whiff of hesitancy is often enough to send us into fight or flight. I trust you know this. And yet the call remains. It's not a unique call, for it is one that Christ himself discharged to this world, a world that we already indicated was not waiting to receive him with open arms, as it were, but rather a world entrenched in darkness, which hated him because he was the light. So we're already positioned to marvel at our Lord once more. I hope you don't tire of that. Marveling at the king and his excellencies. But here, we're marveling at the Lord's resolve to do true good. Not to the neutral, not to the receptive, but to those who crucified. We've highlighted that before, but I'd really like to draw your attention to his resolve. To the resolve that such a course required in carrying it out unto its dreadful conclusion. For he loved not in the face of open arms, but in the face of the most intense hatred, hostility, misunderstanding, and egregious injustice that the world has ever sang, seen. Behold your king, beloved. He is wonderful. That's helpful to remember at the outset because he sends us as his followers to walk a similar way. To resolve to do good, true good in the sharing of the gospel or in the discharge of Christian good deeds to our neighbors who very well may despise us for that very fact. This is the instruction that we receive from him here, that there is an inevitable hostility which is going to sit at the heart of this world because it is hostile to the true king and will be until he openly manifests himself in glory. But note, he doesn't just instruct us about what to expect. He also instructs us about what to seek from him in the discharge of this incredibly challenging call. He calls us unto wisdom. He calls us unto harmlessness. He calls us unto endurance. He calls us unto hope. In other words, he calls us unto Christ-likeness. For everything which we see commended here, as that which we are to seek was embodied by him perfectly as the Lamb of God who conducted himself in perfect innocence in the discharge of his messianic mission. So let's heed these words of instruction 
and encouragement from the shepherd, who is also the lamb, and who now leads lambs as the shepherd. First, we consider that we are sent into difficulty. Second, we consider that we are sent by the king. And third, we consider that we are equipped by the king. Sent into difficulty, sent by the king, equipped by the king. So first, we're sent into difficulty. He's sending them here not just to bring the good news of the kingdom of God, but we do well to remember, but also to to do good to them in the light of that kingdom. Now, we said that that good served a very specific purpose, but if you go to the section before this, they are to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to dispel demons, all of which would have been temporal good that likely would have been received by those who believed and those who didn't. Their mission was the same. Nonetheless, so he sends them out to bring this good news of salvation. And then he says, oh yes, by the way, they're going to hate you for it. Verse 16 opens, I send you out as sheep among wolves. And then verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake or on account of my name. Paul will later write that this posture of the world towards the servants of Christ is not just restricted to gospel ministers, so none of you are off the hook. I could feel your hearts being like, I'm grateful I'm not Michael. You should be grateful. (laughs) But Paul says you're not off the hook. 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says that there's something about Christ's likeness that is intolerable to this world at some level. Anything that whiffs of Christ, because anything that whiffs of God is intolerable to a world at enmity with God, and that for various reasons. Scripture tells us plainly the flesh is hostile to God. The mind set on the flesh is at enmity with God. The world is opposed to God. The God of this world hates the true and living God. Thus, truth and love, true godliness, a Christian is deeply offensive to this world by the Christian's very nature as one who is born from above, born from that world which this world cannot tolerate. This is one of the most difficult features of the Christian life. To earnestly desire someone else's good. Let's grant that we can get there by God's grace. We'll just suppose that for the argument's sake. That's not an easy thing. But scripture everywhere tells us that that is, by God's grace, what we can flicker towards. One of the hardest things is, by God's grace, earnestly desiring someone else's good only to have that person arranged towards you either in pride or outright hostility. I trust you can see the obviousness of that difficulty. Doing good in and of itself is often difficult because it costs us something. To do good to someone who's actively opposing you is doubly Difficult because you're forced to ask, is this really worth it? This cost? In the novel Olav Audinson, there's a story told of a godly man who always opened his home to beggars. This was in medieval Norway. On one occasion, a beggar came and his body was covered in sores and this godly man took him in, fed him, bathed him, tended to his wounds, gave him his very bed, and at each act of kindness, the beggar hurled insults, found faults, and generally reviled the godly man in each act of tenderness. Yet the man persisted in the good. I read that and I thought, this is nearly impossible to imagine doing. How quickly would you abandon that course? 
quickly hand you again. Why? Because we have so little resolve for the doing of good at cost to the glory of God. There? But once more, we come back to that resolve of our Lord. The passage highlighting this comes in Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The reality he is enmeshed in is dreadful. The slapping of the face, the striking of the back, the pulling of the beards, disgrace and difficulty on all sides administered to him by hands that weren't worthy to touch him. And yet it was not in response to them that he acted, but rather in response to the truth of his father's care. And the messianic mission he had come to carry out for the very ones whose hands mistreated him. And thus he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem in resolve. A face like flint as he carried out his messianic commission. Opposed, reviled, despised, mocked, yet he persevered in love to the end. Beloved, what otherworldly love? No? What otherworldly love? No? And notice also, this is not something he did casually, offhandedly. We pick up and set down casual endeavors as if they're nothing. No, this is something that required a divine resolve. A resolve which propelled him in the face of that which would have sent anyone else scrambling. So not only should we mark the otherworldly love which Christ displayed unto sinners, indeed, Christ displayed for you, beloved. For yours were the blows that mocked him. Yours were the sins he bore. Mine, yours. Not only do we mark this otherworldly love, we mark how much resolve is necessary for us to do good to other souls. For it is the same world into which he sends us. It is hazarding the possibility of the same sorts of revilings, oppositions, mocks, mockings. And yet the commission is, speak in my name, do good in my Father's name unto them as I did unto you. Beloved, there's nothing easy about that from this angle. There's nothing easy about that. And it seems to me that that in and of itself is challenging. Sometimes we get the notion that we can just casually sort of do good as we go about pursuing the things we really want to do. We'll just happen to do some good along the way. But mark here the necessity of resolve. Call to mind some difficult task that took a certain amount of tenacity on your behalf. A project, perhaps, that strung out over a long time that you had to set your mind to doing or it wasn't going to get done. The learning of a language, the building of a room, the completion of a degree, the running of a marathon, those things aren't just incidentally accomplished. They require some understanding of the task at hand, some understanding of the fortitude of soul that is necessary to persevere in the face of those inevitable setbacks, in the face of that inevitable opposition, in the face of that inevitable shrinking back for a moment. This is the Christian life, beloved. More specifically, this is the Christian call to bring life to a world entrenched in death death that's not going to yield at our incidental efforts. As a sharing of the gospel, if I get around to it, as the doing of good, if I happen to think about it as I'm pursuing what I really want to pursue. 
Beloved, I trust you can see the bare intentionality that's necessary for the doing of good in the face of actual ill. And make no mistake, this isn't a slight difficulty either. This isn't like a mild opposition. This isn't like running out of glucose running a marathon. This is like running into a brick wall running a marathon. Glucose, I've been told, is much easier for your body to burn as fuel. So if you don't know that, that illustration was lost on you. This isn't just not having enough water. This is being met by a brick wall. The Lord says in verse 17, your own people are going to betray you. You're going to be whipped in public. Verse 18, rulers and outsiders are going to oppose you. You're going to be handed over to stand trial. Later on, your very own family could turn on you in the most unseemly and dreadful ways. Children rising up against parents to have them put to death. Parents handing children over to death. I'm not sure which one of those is worse. Then verse 22, this sweeping statement, you will be hated by all on account of my name. This is not mild adversity. It is a relentless and inescapable atmosphere of hostility and cruelty. Sheep in the midst of wolves. That in and of itself is a striking image. We think wolves in the midst of the sheep. Jesus says, no, 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 you're sheep in a world of wolves. It's like a man trying to survive in the ocean. Pure hostility. The prophet Amos uses a vivid picture to capture a similar sense of the relentlessness of hostility. It's like fleeing from a lion and running into a bear. Fleeing from a bear into your house and placing your hand on the wall to rest only to see a serpent. It's an intense world of hostility. The difficulty here is not a slight one. Well, what can we learn from this? Well, first, we ought to be thankful that by and large, the Lord has spared us the depth of the trouble that he envisions here. Make no mistakes, there have been seasons where families have betrayed each other unto death. Now, don't minimize the real difficulty of actually having familial bonds strained by the faith, that is incredibly difficult. But the depth of difficulty that he envisions here, by and large, we've been spared it. We've been granted an extraordinary quiet. Now certainly this has its own temptations. We ought not to be naive about that. If you think that quiet somehow causes this utter safety as far as our spiritual growth is concerned, you're being bested on a different front altogether. But it seems like we can still be grateful, right? We, oh, we can still be grateful. <laughs> we pray regularly, lead us not into temptation. And on the whole, we have been spared the fires of intense persecution. It doesn't mean the faith hasn't come at cost. But the cost envisioned here is great. At the same time, though, we ought to be prepared to hazard cost for following Christ. If there is a great danger about living in a time of quiet, it's that we become less and less willing to suffer any sort of loss for the sake of Christ. We grow inordinately accustomed to comfort, and that very quickly. We begin to mistake our standard of living for somehow being promised to us in the gospel of Christ. And that's just not the case. Let me emphatically tell you, that's just not the case. The Lord sends us out to be a true blessing to our neighbors in his name by sharing the gospel with them, by rendering unto them Christian love and earnestly desiring their good. And we ought to be willing to hazard some cost in carrying that out. And if the hearts of our neighbors don't yield immediately to those sorts of efforts, that ought not to surprise us, nor it ought to deter us from the course that Christ sets out here. 
This was the reality the disciples experienced on every side as they carried the word of life into this world of death. Just read Acts. Some were killed, some were exiled. Paul's missionary journeys were not easy. They were the beautiful feet that brought the good news, and yet the world esteemed them not, but Christ esteemed them, beloved. And to sit in the gaze of the king, and to earnestly labor for the prospect of hearing, well done, good, and faithful service, this is what prodded them on. Why did they go? Why did they endure such persecution? Simple, because the Lord sent them and they loved their Lord because they knew their Lord's love. That's our next consideration. Sent by the king in the king's name. This is much shorter. It's how verse 16 opens. I myself send you. You get the emphatic pronoun there. I myself send you out as sheep among wolves. And then verse 22 again, you will be hated by all on account of my name. It is as the king sends and it is as the king's men and women that we go forth. There's great encouragement in knowing that the king sends us into this difficulty. He knows it's going to be difficult. He tells us it's going to be difficult. And he sends us nonetheless. So if the telling of difficulty can't ultimately ameliorate the difficulty, it can posture you at least not to be taken off guard. And here he tells us that. Matthew Henry makes the point that he tells them not just to instruct them, but so that their faith will be encouraged as they encounter this hostility. Because once more, it confirms the word of the Lord. But to be sent by the king to go in the king's name, this is of great encouragement for us, is it not? The once and future king, it was a great honor to undertake errands for King Arthur as one of his knights. And Arthur would sit long into the night as his knights would return and would tell him of all of the things that were done in his name for his kingdom, for his honor. You get a similar scene in Luke where the 70 return and they're marveling in Christ's presence about all of these wonders that were done in his name. Even there he instructs them, but you get a similar scene. They were delighted to bear the name of the king forth and in his name to see strongholds topple, life move forth, hope dawn where there is despair. Beloved, I don't think you have ever seen despair this rampant in this world, have you? Have you ever seen despair so rampant in this world? It is in the king's name that true hope is brought. And it is an honor to bring it. Just look at how often Paul delights in the phrase, servant of Christ. You can go look at his letters. He's always starting with that, servant of Christ. Apostle of Christ. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And it's not just Paul. James 1.1, James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a servant of Jesus Christ. You get the sense that the title itself is so precious to those who bear it. And is a source of great encouragement unto them. My baptized beloved, he's placed his name on you. This is what it means to be a Christian. To belong to Christ. To be a follower of Christ. To be a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. Let your title servant of Christ, be no small encouragement to you, that you do not stand as a private person. You stand as a citizen of the King of Kings and his magnificent reign. Let it encourage you as he prods us, prompts us, strengthens us 
to shine as lights in this world that, beloved, is entrenched in darkness. But also being sent by the king frees us. And by this I mean that the Lord calls us to share the gospel and to love our enemies and then entrust the results to him. It seems to me that we take things far too personally on the whole. <laughs> far too personally. The fact that we stand as representatives of another invites us to say, I don't think this is about me. <laughs> Maybe you have issues that have nothing to do with me. Like, look, I'm introducing you to the most wonderful person in the world. If you want to rail, it's like, just get out of the way. <laughs> it frees us simply to discharge this call. Not discharge it in animosity. Not discharge it as if we've got some score to settle. But discharge it as a true servant and entrust the results to the true and living God. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You probably take that question as grappling over a number of different points of that statement. Who is sufficient to whiff of Christ when we still whiff of the flesh and death? Who is sufficient for that? Who is sufficient to understand God's purposes that some are being saved and some are being hardened as the gospel is set forth? Who is sufficient for that? Who is sufficient to endure as that death unto death inevitably resounds upon the messenger even though they're no more than a messenger. Who is sufficient for that? Who is sufficient for these things? He asks and then elsewhere answers. Our sufficiency is from the Lord. He is the one who makes us with of Christ. He is the one who contents us with what he has revealed in his word. He is the one who equips us with endurance even if a world aims its hatred towards the servants when it's really the king with whom they take issue. But for us, beloved, we do well to remember that it's with the king that the world takes issue. And thus we're freed to discharge this and not take things so personally. But that also reminds us that we ought to be constrained by this title, by which I mean the Lord warns us that the world, the Lord warns us that the world very well may hate us as we act as Christians, but we are constrained to make sure that the world hates us because we're acting as Christians and not because we can be very unpleasant. <laughs> Peter writes, if you suffer persecution, make sure it is because you are a Christian. Let none of you suffer as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. We do well to recall that indeed, as we whiff of Christ, there is a sense in which the world might turn with the cruelty, cruelty of wolves upon the one they sniff out. But we also do well not to baptize our sin, thinking that somehow everything that we do and any displeasure that we might incur is because we're Christians. I trust you're not so naive as to think that you still can't give actual offense to your unbelieving neighbor. In that case, what's the call? Go apologize to your unbelieving neighbor and tell them you didn't act as a Christian ought to act. Not store up animosity in your heart because they don't like you because you're a Christian. You're fooling yourself and you're harming them. That's the course. It frees us, beloved, but it also constrains us. I've gone long. I have a really good third point that I'm going to truncate. <laughs> Who is sufficient for these things? None of us, but the king does equip us, which is the final point. When I joined the Peace Corps several months before I left, I received a letter from the Peace Corps, and it included a list of things that I would need or that would serve me well in the two years that I was going to spend in a foreign country. And this list had been compiled from 
previous volunteers who had been asked to reflect upon what they wished they would have had. And it was an incredibly helpful list that gave me some bearing as to what the experience might be like and what equipment I could bring which would actually serve useful in the midst of that trial. And we have something even better here for the king who sends us into danger, who tells us that we go in his name, tells us exactly what sort of graces that we ought to seek from him as we carry out this mission. Doing good unto souls that may turn on you is not easy, and so you are in need of weapons, graces, gifts. First, you're in need of wisdom and innocence. That's exactly what he immediately draws to our attention. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's not the rage of Achilles that you need, beloved. It's the wisdom of Odysseus. We're very good at the rage of Achilles. Rage against them. What we're in need of is the wisdom of Odysseus steeped in the harmlessness of a dove. Understanding discernment, discretion, bathed in innocence and harmlessness. From the beginning, the serpent was known for its cleverness. And if the enemy could use this frail, how much more our God for good? We're called to understand aright, understand circumstances, understand the human heart, understand dangers, understand opportunities. And in the light of this end understanding, act well with no ill will towards any, and with a simple dependence upon God who cares for the birds. If you want to know what this looks like, again, look unto the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew when to speak. He knew when to say silent. He knew when to press into the heart of danger, and he knew when to withdraw. Even in his sharp rebukes, the purity of his heart shines forth. Who would deny our need for the Spirit of Christ in the face of opposition, in the face of adversity, to discharge our call in wisdom and in innocence? We're also in need of discretion. He goes on and he says, watch out for men. If only danger were from actual wolves, that would make things easier, wouldn't it? You'd be able to see them, and then you would be able to go the other way. But these are men. They're human beings. The very ones to whom we are sent to do good are the very ones against whom we are called to beware. Can you feel the tension there? <laughs> How can wariness and love occupy the same heart? Do you feel the tension? No one feels the tension here? I trust you feel the tension here. This is only by God's grace. There is no way you are going to be tempted to either hate or be afraid of one of whom you are wary. And yet the call is to marry wariness and love. Seek the Lord's grace. You can't do that on your own. We're beset on da by dangers on every side. We're prone to get this wrong. We're either too quick to dismiss someone but we're too slow to depart from someone, <laughs> right? We can feel the depth of our need in this, to be guarded from naivete and also to be guarded from harsh cynicism. And again, we see in this our Lord perfectly, who did not entrust himself to man, and yet there was no one who ever walked the earth who loved man like he did. Next, we're to seek words and courage. When they hand you over, do not worry how or what you're going to say, for it's going to be given to you at that moment what you will say. For you are not the one speaking, but the spirit of your Father is the one speaking in you. The Lord calls us away from worry and anxiety about bodily needs in Matthew 7, and here he says, don't be anxious concerning the provision of speech. So deep is the Father's provision for you. What to say before kings concerning the gospel? He doesn't mean by this that there's no reason to think about God's word, no reason to meditate about the truth, no reason to understand the faith. He doesn't mean that any more than he means that because God cares for the birds, you don't have to work. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that in this moment, entrust yourself to his provision and marvel 
Because once more, more is going on here, beloved, than just me and you. These are God's purposes being carried out to see his gospel to the ends of the earth and to the presence of kings. And I'm struck by the fact that these simple men will be given the courage to speak in the presence of kings. We shrink back from our neighbor who has zero standing in the world when it comes to sharing the gospel. These simple fishermen will be emboldened in the presence of royalty. And don't let your Americanism downplay the significance of that moment. You've never been in a court like that. That's a weighty moment. And to be able to speak truth in love in that moment is nothing shy than an act of heaven, beloved. One that is promised to us in this moment. And last, we're to seek endurance and hope. I told you I was truncating it. You're welcome. Endurance and hope. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one city, flee to another. For truly, I tell you, you will not finish the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We can tackle the difficulty just in a minute here, but notice the plain good hope that the Lord gives us here. As intense as persecution is, it's not forever. As difficult as this life is, it's not forever. He says at the end is glory. At the end is the return of the Son of Man. At the end is salvation. One of the hardest things in the midst of difficulty is that chirping deception that it's never going to end. Go run a marathon. Around mile 17, you're going to be like, I'm pretty sure mile 26 doesn't exist. But it's a lie. You know there's an end. He tells us there's an end. And not, is the end, not only is the end just a cessation of that difficulty, it's the consummation of joy. For whom do we see there face to face? Jesus Christ, the King, the one for whom our hearts long with more ardor than any of Arthur's knights yearned for him. We can ask, because I feel like this text asks it, even though if it were up to me, I would have ended on that last note, what it means that they will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You're not going to be surprised that there's different opinions on this matter. And the most likely of the opinions, as it seems to me, are the following. Calvin, who says that the coming of the Son of Man is a providential relief in seasons of persecution. So if you can note here, he ties this instruction to the instruction to flee. So Calvin says, even in times of flight, it's not perpetual flight, but that the church is visited, as it were, by the grace of the Son of Man in that more favorable circumstances are opened up for them. We can say that that's true and good, and we've already marveled at that, that it hasn't been just one unbroken set of hostility on every side to this degree, and we can rejoice at God's providential dealings at that. Can we not? I trust that we can. The second one is D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson says that the coming of the Son of Man is the judgment in history of A.D. 70 on Jerusalem, that they're not going to finish evangelizing Israel before the coming of God in judgment in A.D. 70. Now, this has some theological plausibility because the judgments of history are judgments, although it's harder to see how the coming of the Son of Man here, which in Matthew's Gospel is almost always, if not always, the coming in glory, which is to say his resurrection, his ascension, Pentecost, and his second coming, all of which is considerable as the coming of man in glory. Which brings to the third position and one that I think I, I lean towards. William Hendrickson holds this position and James Boyce holds this position. The coming of the Son of Man is the Son's entrance into glory. And as I said, the Son's entrance into glory is his exit from the estate of humiliation. So it includes resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, and second coming, all of which comprise Glory, the, the Son of Man coming in glory. So he doesn't say which section of that 
coming of the Son of Man this relates to. But the thrust of the passage in the light of that is there's no end until Christ returns of gospel ministry. That you're not going to finish. Like, you're not going to get to a point where you can kick back and be like, yeah, well, we've done this. Like, yeah, it's, it's done. Like, I guess we just wait now until he comes back. The point is the gospel ministry is going to go on until the Son of Man returns. There's no end to it in this life, in this age. It's end. The church's rest, the consummation is when Christ returns. And until then, beloved, we set our hand to the plow. And that's good to remember because I think in light of the earlier observation that we're way too comfortable here we're prone to start our rest too soon. The fact is that as long as we have breath and as long as the Son of Man isn't here, we ought to be seeking these graces. We ought to be praying this commission. And we ought to expect that the world very well may rise up in hostility as we continue to devote ourselves in the name of the King to the King's mission, namely declaration of the forgiveness of sins and the discharge of true works of love unto the glory of God. Come what may. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we do give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would edify us by it, that you would strengthen us in it, O Lord, that you would galvanize a resolve in our heart to hazard the difficulty as Christ hazarded the difficulty, to follow in his footsteps, Lord, as the Spirit leads us and guides us and works, Father, in ways of which we are not even fully aware to magnify your name in the declaration of the gospel and the doing of true good works in the name of Christ. Be pleased, O Lord, to work this out in and among us. For we ask in Christ. Amen.